Well, welcome everyone to the fourth of our ESG series. How can we prevent the environment being sacrificed in the face of the importance of SMG during a pandemic? Quick intro from me. I'm Colin Webster, and I'm CEO of the Pfizer Group, which is Bruin Financial's parent company. I'm deeply proud of the commitment we have here at Bruin to do our part to try to move the dial in ESG investment. I'm also grateful to the CFA for their partnership in this series. I don't know about the rest of you, but it's great to feel some optimism back in the air as we approach the end of 2020. I think whatever your politics, hopefully Biden's victory will be better than another four years of Trump when it comes to America's environmental agenda. Maybe something to talk about at the end. And with yesterday's vaccine breakthrough from Pfizer, perhaps we can begin to see the seeds of economic recovery, which are going to be so important to provide a foundation for environmental investment. So I'm now going to hand over to Georgina Sell from Bruin. Uh, Georgie's been instrumental in bringing this series together. Thank you to you and to the whole Bruin team who have helped support this series. And more importantly, thank you to all of our panellists today. Please do enjoy the session. Thanks very much, Colin. And thank you everyone for joining us today. In conjunction with Climate Week, we're keen to explore the topic, how can you prevent the environment being sacrificed in the face of the importance of social and governance during a pandemic? We think that our climate future is harsh because we hear lots in the news about what will happen if we don't act. We hear about the long-term implications of the climate crisis, severe drought, a refugee crisis, and conflict around reduced food resource. But the hardest to digest for me has been watching Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, and more recently, David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, when they constructed a convincing case that the very survival of life on Earth as we know it is threatened by climate change. Today, we hope to overcome the fear and confusion surrounding climate change and to brainstorm some positive environmental solutions that can help us to reverse global warming and leave a better world for new generations. We'd like to focus on what we can do and restore our faith in the capacity of human beings to solve these incredible challenges we face. Individuals, communities, businesses, investment firms, nonprofits and governments have shown that they care about this planet. We've sought to make this understandable to people from all backgrounds and points of view so that it's accessible and compelling to the broadest audience. And we hope to touch upon some of the solutions that have the greatest potential to reduce our impact on the planet. We believe that these solutions won't just help to reduce pollution, they'll help to regenerate economies, produce jobs, improve health, eliminate hunger and restore land. And this has become all the more possible after the recent results of the US elections. Um, so I'm extremely excited that we've managed to get such a great panel today and I'd like to introduce them to you. First up, we've got Tan Bevan. Uh, so Tan has held a number of senior roles spanning investments, trading, distribution, products and operational functions. Most recently, Tan has been the interim COO at Greencoat Capital, one of the UK's largest investors in renewable energy assets with more than 5 billion assets under management. Here she was responsible for chairing committees associated with ESG, HR, risk management, and has developed various policies and procedures in those areas. And next up, we have Rebecca Craddock-Taylor. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca is Director of Sustainable Investment at Gresham House, a specialist alternatives asset management group dedicated to sustainable investment across a range of strategies with expertise in forestry, housing, infrastructure, renewable energy, battery storage, and public and private equity. Previously, Rebecca worked as an ESG strategist at Univest, where she was responsible for setting and leading a sustainability framework across their investment approach. And at Hyman's Robertson, as an investment consultant and responsible investment advisor, she was shortlisted for the Professional Pensions 2019 Rising Star Advisor of the Year Awards. And Louise Dudley, Good afternoon, Louise. Louise leads the ESG and Responsible Investment Research Strategy within the Global Equities team at Federated Hermes. Louise has delivered research supporting the returns from ESG integration, 
which has led to the creation of innovative, customised product solutions and tools. She is board member of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association and was named one of Financial News's rising stars of asset management. And we have Denise Delaney. Hi, Denise. Denise is partner at ERM, a global sustainability consultancy. She leads corporate sustainability for Northern Europe, having joined ERM through sustainability's acquisition. She's a trusted advisor to leading organizations in developing corporate sustainability strategies. And her work spans sectors with experience across financial services, pharmaceuticals, FMCG, technology, and across more than 20 countries around the world. And finally, Stuart Taylor. Good afternoon, Stuart. He is Director and CEO at Just Dig It, an NGO whose nature-based solutions are key to reversing the effects of climate change. Just Dig It make dry land green by inspiring farmers in Africa and positively impacting climate change, nature and people. Stuart's an experienced CEO in the media industry and a non-exec director who gave up his corporate career to focus on climate solutions. So I'd like to kick off with you, Tan, and I've got a couple of questions, but would like to start with the question actually posed to us by the webinar topic itself. Um, how do you think we can prevent the environment being sacrificed in the face of the importance of social and governance during a pandemic? Hi, Georgie. Thank you for the introduction and uh, for having us here today. Um, I think let's first define the we in that question. Um, we, the investment community, can um, continue to hold ourselves and the companies we invest into account. And I think we're, we're actually seeing the fruits of that effort over the past years um, by the increasing amount of assets um, backing the pressure on companies to reduce their emissions, reduce the impact they have on the biodiversity um, that we're all dependent on, uh, to manage their waste and to manage their water usage. Um, but I think notwithstanding the greenwashing of progress in these areas, it's, um, there has been a massive shift in sentiment and action associated with reducing these emissions um, and, and managing waste. And we're starting to see new and interesting technologies such as vertical farming come about that will help us create a much more sustainable society and, and sustainable businesses um, in, in these new technologies. Um, is it happening fast enough um, and extensively enough? I, I would say no. Um, but, but companies actually do still have to operate in a competitive landscape and, 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 and they can't do it alone, no matter how much pressure investors put on them. So, so the other we, or another we, is, includes governments and industry bodies. And I think we need to see a more rapid shift in the right policies and regulations that will create even playing fields for these companies with the rules that require the changes needed in our society and environmental systems. Um, I think large parts of our society would like to see the significant amounts of money spent on fiscal and industry support for the COVID crisis tied to certain environmentally focused objectives. Um, for example, the airline industry should require specific emission target reductions. Many airlines in, in, in trouble now had no issue putting their capital towards share buybacks or dividends when they could have been actually investing in new technologies that reduce their emissions. So, you know, here's an example of $47 billion has been spent in the last 10 years on share buybacks for six US airlines alone. I mean, that's a significant amount of capital that's not going into improving the industry and the technologies and reducing their emissions. And then there's another we, um, the we who also needs to take some responsibility, and that's all of us. Uh, we're customers of these companies, and, and a lot of cases, sadly not all, we vote for our government representatives in a democracy. And that's one of the most powerful manifestations of good governance that we can actually exhibit, I think, is, is by voting and putting pressure on our governments to, to deliver on some of these objectives much more fastly than, much faster than they are today. So we all have a job to do in changing our behaviours. Um, we know it can be done because we saw it in the first lockdown with large reductions in air pollution and emission levels and buying food from local suppliers and eating more healthily at home. So all the we's need to play a part in this. So when, I, when you say we, I, I mean all of us. All aspects. And, and how would you summarise the best investment approach to drive environmentally positive outcomes? Well, I'm not sure I'd promote any one investment approach as the best. Um, that's a fairly um, absolute statement to make. The opportunities to generate positive environmental outcomes still have to consider three really important points. Who is the investor? 
what is their risk appetite and ability to absorb potential losses is probably the first one. So for an example, an investor, an individual, a retail investor who, who may want to invest in renewable energy assets, um, but for much of the investment, it, it, or if much of that investment is going into something, for example, like con the construction phase of renewable energy assets, um, that's a very different proposition and risk profile as an investment to assets that are already in operation. So. Um, so the, you know, for example, you could invest in, in hydrogen, for example, but that's still high risk because the green hydrogen form, which is the one that we want to promote and develop, is not yet a cost effective and scalable technology. Um, many companies in that space are not yet profitable and, and, and may never be because not every company survives. So you've got to think about the risk profile first and foremost. Um, the second point is the investment structure that you may be investing in, and, and that will also dictate um, uh, to what extent um, constraints are in place that, that may inhibit how investments are made and in what types of investments. Um, it's, it's really, really important. I can't stress this enough. It's really important for this industry to not forget that what the objective is on, on the investment vehicle is really what we have to deliver. We can't be holding ourselves out as delivering something um, that we're not and with that, that we're not doing in practice. Um, and, you know, that gets into the greenwashing point on ESG as well. So, for example, um, USITS funds, by definition, are supposed to provide investors with the ability to withdraw their money from the fund the next day. They're also not permitted to have concentration in specific companies or risks. So, if, so a fund investing in, say, physical renewable energy assets is a very different risk profile to a fund that invests in lots of different companies' shares or, or, or their bonds and, and has ESG integrated into that investment process or or it screens out certain companies with poor environmental practices. So they're very, very different strategies and, and, and constraints that are being put on, the, on what you can actually do in terms of investment. And the last point to consider is actually the nature of the investments or the assets being invested in themselves. So investing in bonds versus equities um, offers a very different financial risk and return profile and will also have varying degrees to which the investment manager who's representing the, the asset owners or the investors um, to the extent to which they can influence how companies progress their environmental practices by offering or withholding capital, um, by divesting or by, um, you know, um, dare I say it, you know, having been forced to put, put money into them because they're un, under an ETF and they're in a benchmark. Um, there's all these different weightings and trade-offs that you have to make depending on what you're actually investing in. And I think investing in something like private equity or, or, or private credit or, or even venture capital funds creates a very different risk profile that isn't suitable for all investors. So, um, but in some ways, it's those early stage um, and private areas where a lot of the changes are going to be made in new technologies because there's going to be risks put, um, or sorry, there's going to be capital put in place for, to support them that can actually absorb some of that risk, whereas not every individual investor can. So I think that's important to just think about those three things when we think about what we want to make um, a difference on in terms of our environmental investments. Thanks, Tan. And where have you seen environmental factors having a bearing on social and governance factors? Um, well, I'd say a good example is renewable energy assets. I mean, I know that's something that um, I've been more recent, recently involved in. Um, with renewable energy, it's easy to assume that the job's done when it comes to those assets because by their nature, they don't produce carbon emissions. But actually, um, their construction on site and their ongoing operation or the transport um, practices and, and, and services that they have can certainly negatively impact the environment in other ways, or they can impact the societies in which they're situated. For example, um, well-managed sites should have habitat management plans that ensure that the wildlife and the fauna are not adversely affected by the actual um, you know, solar panels or the wind turbines or the bioenergy plant and the, the traffic coming in for the supplies of those bioenergy plants. The safety of farm animals, which are the livelihoods of local farmers, should also be considered. Um, there can also be negative social impacts that, that have to be considered and, and, and should be re reduced by hiring, for example, local employees where possible, or by funding community activities and projects, and trying to educate the communities on the, on the benefits and the trade-offs and, and trying to work with them rather than against them or enforcing things upon them, because not everybody wants to have a, a wind turbine 
you know, sitting in their backyard and not everybody wants to see solar panels, you know, scattering the landscape. So those sort of considerations have to be managed and balanced out. I think having um, a strong focus on health and safety is hugely important in, in the renewable energy space. And, and it is, I think, for a lot of infrastructure and real estate. Um, many of the people working on site are dealing with dangerous contexts, such as high voltage equipment, working at heights or even offshore in the offshore wind farms. And so if procedures aren't good or aren't followed, the consequences can be significant and that can have a knock-on effect to the reputation of the investment manager and, and, and the project and the site, or even, it's, you know, even worse, it's efficiency in operation, which in turn reduces the investment returns generated because the plants and the, and the sites aren't operating at their optimal uh, efficient, and that's how they've been modelled in terms of returns that they're going to generate for an investment. And so the governance and oversight of these types of assets are hugely relevant to the performance they offer as investments and how they affect the employees working on them and the societies in which they're situated. Thanks, Tan. And Rebecca, I'm also interested to hear how interlinked you think the environment is to society more broadly. Thanks, Georgina. Um, it's inextricably linked. Uh, I mean, our way of life depends on a very stable functioning and healthy environment. It provides us with our most basic needs, but we found that with the overuse of natural resources that we've had significant consequences that we're facing at the moment. So rising temperatures, increasing rainfall, increasingly severe weather events, and um, uh, as David Attenborough alluded to in his film, the loss, uh, the, the speed at which we are losing biodiversity. But translating those environmental effects into societal effects is quite difficult, I think, to comprehend uh, and to, to measure. Um, it was one of the reasons why I went to Puerto Rico last year to understand what the social implications were of an environmentally related event. And just to give you a, a few stats around that, after Hurricane Maria, 4% of the population left Puerto Rico. Uh, that's a huge chunk of, of people there leaving. 30% of children were perceived uh, perceived that their lives or the lives of people they love to be at risk, which is a predictor of PTSD. Uh, and there was a huge number of damp issues which led to respiratory health problems and a lot of pressure on their healthcare systems. So that just gives you a few examples of, of how an environmental event can translate to social impacts on a negative way. But I think there's a positive side of that is, is the uh, community strength that was shown because people became far more reliant on their neighbours and they were forced to share the, the, the Partly translates to what we've seen uh, throughout COVID lockdowns as we have become more reliant on local supply chains we're more reliant on our neighbours, especially if we're uh, in those, those key risk groups. So I think that the pandemic has been a real reminder of how sensitive we are to our natural world. And uh, we really rely on a healthy environment to sustain our current way of life. And I think while the focus has been very much on the pandemic in the last few months, and rightly so, we have to be really careful not to lose sight of the significance of, of climate risk. Just those few stats that I gave you of Puerto Rico is, is a hurricane that happened a few years ago. And, and if that's gonna to continue to happen at increasing severity, we have to be really aware of how reliant we are on, on a healthy, healthy environment. And do you think that ESG can help us to accelerate the speed at which we can transition to net zero by 2030? Um, yes and no. <laughs> Not an easy answer, but yes, because uh, ESG analysis helps us identify why uh, net zero is really important for investors and businesses to uh, start transitioning towards. It helps identify what the physical risks are, the transitional risks, the legal aspects. And the application of a net zero economy is ultimately the solution to that. Uh, no, because... I think that ESG analysis has fast become quite a backward-looking assessment. Um, a good ESG rating doesn't necessarily mean that a company is uh, adding uh, positively to a net zero transition. So we have to start 
looking forward in order to use ESG analysis to benefit that transition, we have to start assessing how a company fits within a net zero economy. So as well as assessing a carbon footprint of a company, we can look at how they contribute to a solution. So can they decarbonize the way we travel? For example, electric cars, uh, can they support lower carbon ways of producing food? So alternative plant-based proteins or potentially repurposing industrial land into modern farming techniques. Tan mentioned vertical farming, a good example of changing the way that we eat. Um, can we replace existing materials? So can we use timber instead of uh, very carbon intensive materials like cement and steel? So ESG analysis really has to go beyond a rating. Um, we need to start identifying what the solutions are to start taking those steps on a path to net zero. And we can't jump to net zero immediately. There are lots of steps that we have to take in between. We can use ESG analysis absolutely to help identify what those problems are, activity, and encourage uh, companies to start taking those steps and reducing their emissions. Um, because as I've said, a good rating doesn't mean that it's a positive contribution to the net zero economy. And Rebecca, how does Gresham House invest in opportunities which contribute towards the transition to a, a low carbon economy? Sure, so we um, invest in, in a range of, of real assets. Um, so linking back to Tan's point, we invest in the kind of, I suppose, slightly higher risk category of um, asset classes, um, the innovation, the, the real assets, um, new tech areas. So just to give you a few examples, we invest in renewable energy. So that's helping to change the way that we generate energy. Uh, we also support that generation with battery storage. So that is helping to facilitate higher levels of renewable energy within that broader energy mix that we're currently using and to help support that kind of slice of the pie increasing for renewables. We invest in forestry. So timber uh, is, a, is a great uh, material that can be used to replace carbon intensive um, materials like cement and steel. And, and David Attenborough alluded to that in his um, film as well. We're also investing in forestry that generates carbon credits, which is a very complicated area. And we have to be really careful not to rely on carbon credits when we're transitioning to net zero. Um, we invest in housing. And the way that uh, the reason why that's important is because a lot of our homes are very um, energy inefficient. So we are targeting only to purchase homes that have a rating of an of EPC or an energy performance rating that colourful chart that you get when you rent or buy a home at the back of your pack um, of a B or above, and only about 0.3% of properties in the UK meet those requirements. So it's a high ambition in terms of what we're aiming for, and there it's supporting changing the way that we live. In our infrastructure, we invest in waste to energy plants. So that is uh, changing the way that we deal with waste, diverting it from landfill and instead using it to generate um, energy and also vertical farms. So the benefits of that is it changes the way that we're producing food. It's using um, land in, in a more efficient way, uh, reducing food miles because we're not relying on having to transport food from um, other parts of the world. Less pesticides are needed and less uh, water is needed. So those are just, uh, I think, a few examples. That's what we invest in, but there are just a few examples of how um, we can start to invest in the net zero um, economy. And I think change can feel quite overwhelming and is often for investors a lot of worry about what they're going to have to start excluding from their investment universe. I think for me, I'd like us to start shifting towards a more um, opportunistic view of what the um, net zero economy provides us and that it, it, it's a real it's a really huge opportunity for investors um, but we have to realize that we can't solely rely on renewable energy and we need to look across that broad spectrum of asset allocation. Thanks Rebecca lots of food for thought there in terms of different investment solutions um, I'm quite interested to hear from Stuart um, you know the perspective of an NGO around what nature-based solutions there are as well to combat climate change. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have to drastically reduce carbon emissions, as as uh, my colleagues have said, from energy, manufacturing, building, farming, agriculture, transportation, etc. But at the same time, we have to invest in nature-based solutions, which enable carbon to be reabsorbed by plants, the soil and the oceans. I mean, plants via photosynthesis are, are the single most effective way of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And it's kind of free, you know, it happens naturally. Um, there's a whole host of solutions, uh, nature-based solutions that involve restoring trees, planting trees, regreening dry land, changing the way rice is cultivated, for instance, to reduce methane, um, allowing mangrove swamps to re- uh, mangrove swamps to to recover, uh, forests of all descriptions, uh, the way we manage livestock, and in fact all agricultural crops. I mean, this is what my organisation Just Dig It focuses on, um, specifically. Uh, regreening areas of desertified or overgrazed soil, which could be used for sustainable agriculture uh, and or simply regreened land for wildlife and carbon sequestration. It's estimated there's over 2 billion acres of abandoned, overgrazed, but restorable farmland on the planet. Um, They can all be turned back into productive land and or carbon sinks. Just dig it, we use ancient farming techniques. It's really not rocket science, very low tech. in, in overfarmed areas to harness water in the soil, <clears throat> excuse me, when it rains. Um, this, allows, this then allows seeds to, that are already in the soil to regenerate and, and grow. Uh, and, and in a very short space of time, the whole area is covered in, in greenery. Um, it's incredibly scalable. It's extremely cost-effective. And of course, the benefits are, are, are manifold. I mean, Food security for people where we operate in Africa is a, is a massive one, particularly for small holding, smallholder farmers. Water and carbon retention in the soil, so you improve the quality of the soil. Biodiversity comes back, the insects, uh, the birds, the animals, and of course, CO2 uh, sequestration. Of course, our main ambition, which is in our tagline, is that we want a cooler planet. And there's, it's no accident that rainforests are cooler than deserts. Um, it's because of nature. Um, We're an innovation and communication partner of the United Nations. Uh, They're just about to launch their decade of ecosystem restoration, uh, which is the sort of 2020s. And we're also part of the AFR 100 group, 30 countries in Africa that have come together to help restore and look after their own land. And, you know, we partner with companies to to offset carbon. And and as, uh, as Rebecca said, this is not the only solution, but companies that want to do something positive for the environment, the role of business just cannot be underestimated in our journey towards a net zero economy. And, and it's, it's really heartening to understand that the ESG agenda is going right up the priority list for major investors and shareholders. And what other agricultural solutions are there to reduce climate change? Well, agri- agriculture, people talk a lot about oil and gas, which obviously is a massive problem in terms of emissions, but, but agriculture is, is enormous too, and uh, very, very problematic. Um, reading through the Project Drawdown uh, list, 12 out of the top 20 top solutions um, of the most effective ways to combat climate change are to do with nature and agriculture and land use. Obviously, it's a complex, wide area, um, but particularly the way many of the large industrial food companies uh, produce food uh, for humans and animals. You know, the use of pesticides and chemical fertilizers is often devastating for biodiversity and and long-term soil health. So the major food companies, I mean, uh, and the manufacturers that grow natural crops are really having to pay attention to this. Um, Regenerative agriculture is is gaining ground and and moving up the agenda very fast. An example would be General Mills in America. Um, They're really experimenting with this now. They they recognize that there is a long-term risk to their business if they can't sustain the very land that they're extracting crops from. Um, other examples include intercropping, vertical farming's been mentioned, uh, hydroponics. There are many, many t- techniques that improve, actually improve the yield from conventional techniques for farmers, while simultaneously cutting costs of expensive fertilizers. Um, other solutions include forest protection, um, food composting on, on a sort of farming agricultural scale, not just in your back garden, um, managed irrigation, um, rotation cropping is, is coming back now uh, and managed grazing for, 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 for um, cattle. But, but it's not just the land use, it's sea use as well. So if, you step, if humans step out of the way and let sea kelp forests return, mangrove swamps I've mentioned, peatland production, it's all the same idea. Uh, nature can absorb 
carbon much more quickly than than any technical solution that we've invented just yet. Thanks, Stuart. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about livestock because um, it's quite a controversial topic, I know, but um, apparently I think it accounts for about 15% of global greenhouse gases that are emitted. And uh, it's even been said that if cattle were their own nation, they would be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Um, so I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Georgina. It's, it's a massive problem that, that doesn't really get the same airtime, if you like, or media time as, 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 say, oil or gas. But yeah, I think, I think there's going to have to be some... I mean, a lot of, a lot of people are discovering that uh, you don't need meat uh, for a healthy life. I mean, meat's very nice, but uh, you know, traditional Chinese cooking, for instance, only uses meat as a garnish as opposed to the sort of core component. Um, that is changing as people get richer and become wealthier and, and can afford meat because it's seen as, as aspirational. And then you've got the mature Western economies, which are realizing it's not that healthy and we just can't produce enough of this stuff without ruining the planet. So there is definitely um, a lot more uh, impetus behind a sort of more balanced, more vegetarian, uh, heavy diet. You can get all your proteins and nutrients from legumes, grains, pulses, fruits, and so on. Um, and this has an impact, I think, for the investment community too. You, you're seeing companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, you know, uh, really starting to turn heads in the investment communities because they are they are looking at this trend that people still want the taste, but they need they need the nutrition as well. Um, and so, you know, meatless, meatless food, I think, is going to be a, a significant growth area. I mean, to your point, cattle are the worst offenders in many respects, because it's not just the water it takes to grow a, a full grown cow. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's the land they need. Um, and we just don't have the land on the planet uh, if the population is going to increase. So it's also the methane they, they, they sort of excrete when they... Um, but but properly managed cattle can be very very positive for for properly grazed managed grazing can be very positive for the environment. You know their dung can can provide nutrients to the back to the soil, providing it's done in a managed um, sort of uh, organic uh, and regenerative way. So I think there's a, there's a lot there that that does affect the uh, affect the, the investment community. But I do think this is one societal and behavioural change that may need some nudging along from regulation and tax, not just relying on human beings to, to sort of discover vegetarianism and, and change their own diet. It could be seen as the sort of tobacco of the future in some, some respects. Thanks, Stuart. And Denise, it's been said that we're in the middle of the greatest energy transition in history. Um, I'm interested to hear whether you think the forthcoming president, um, Joe Biden, and the fact that he actually wants to rejoin the Paris Agreement will help us to accelerate the renewable transition. Mm. Thanks a lot, Trudina. I think so. certainly that the fact that the, the current, I guess you could say, or, or soon to be previous administration, um, you know, in its withdrawal from the Paris Agreement was definitely a major setback, if, if only in many ways, um, symbolically. We know we need typically to see leadership from the top and our, and our governments are no different, but we were pleased in that period to see that a number of businesses did stay the course in terms of their own emission reductions targets. Um, so they didn't necessarily roll back their ambition um, and it certainly didn't um, deter some of the growth of the renewable energy industry overall. That said, I think the, the result that we're seeing emerge in the US and, and hopefully that uh, sticks um, is significant. So certainly, again, that symbolic value of rejoining the Paris Agreement, as well as making good on that agreement. So perhaps rejoining will be the easy part. It's, it's that, um, again, that symbolic um, move. I do think the US will probably need to do more to really um, prove itself again as a reliable, consistent partner and deliver on the new targets going to need to set um, and the initiatives that will need to back that up, be it the Green Climate Fund or, or, or all the other measures along with it. So I think it's quite easy to, to overestimate sometimes the power of a, of a single U.S. president. And that's just the way the government, um, you know, the structure of the government that, that we have there. And I, I say we as being both in U.K. and in U.S. national for, for better or worse, um, but certainly having a divided legislature, which is perhaps in the balance still as some of the, the voting um, plays out won't make it easy to deliver on some of the, the more tangible um, kind of acceleration or, or, or um, progress with, with climate change, I'm afraid. So a bit of a mixed bag, but, but generally for the good. 
<laughs> That's good to hear. Um, do you think it will be possible to make a full transition to renewables in, in the next decade then? Mm, it's a very tall charge, I suppose. You know, certainly seeing, as, as um, many of you and some of you have alluded already, that there's really strong growth forecasted for the re for renewable energy, particularly wind, solar. Um, and over the coming years, it could be something like 40% of, of global energy consumption. Um, more compelling when you say full transition would be that 2050 view that we could be looking at kind of up to 85% of um, the world's electricity by, by renewables by then. And, and that feels like that complete transition or full transition and it's two decades more than the time frame we're, we're generally talking about. Um, we know in any big transformation that the last 20% is always going to be the hardest to achieve. Uh, so I think that we will hit that um, challenge. We often refer to the next decade that we have as you know, the decade of action. We're, we're very much in that now. And even, if, even at the beginning, there will be setbacks we can't foresee. I mean, 2020 has been a lesson in that as regards to the pandemic. And there could be faster advances that that we can't yet predict either, whether, whether technological or, or otherwise. Um, so I'm skeptical uh, that we'll be full transition and it'll be job done come 2030. Um, maybe if we had acted more significantly earlier, but we, we can't, uh, of course, hindsight's 2020 perhaps. So we, I'm sure we can get to that full transition, but the timeline uh, is not something I'd be willing to bet on just yet. Thanks. Um, thanks, Denise. And I mean, having worked with large corporates across lots of different sectors, I'm quite interested to hear what other ways companies and investors can play a role in combating climate change? Mm. I think there's, there's a whole array of things. So one um, that, that comes to mind quite recently is this idea of carbon positivity, that we can do more useful things with carbon um, if we can sequester and capture in the right ways. And it may seem far away, but also recently you know, a company like L'Oreal as with Total and, and a tech company, you know, have produced a cosmetic plastic bottle made from industrial carbon emissions as captured. You know, it's early stage, it's, it's a minor, it's one example, but I think uh, we need to see, see more of that. Um, there's also at the other end of the spectrum or, or non-technical um, ways that I think will certainly accelerate um, that, that transition. So a lot of companies are really, I think, fully starting to realize, more fully realize their voice and their influence. So it's not just what they do, those specific targets and goals they set that they deliver within their four walls, so to speak, but how they can shape um, what goes on in, in the wider market and in economies they, they work in, and that's through through policy. Um, in some industries, we know it's well reported, spend kind of unimaginable sums on advocacy and lobbying. And so there's this, this realization that they need to ensure that their um, advocacy efforts are in line with those strategies. Um, so Shell, ArcelorMittal, and, and no doubt others are undertaking those kinds of reviews and publishing the reviews they're doing of their trade associations, their memberships in light of their climate positions. I think that could be, could be powerful, again, maybe partly symbolic, partly on the ground. Um, there's also behavior change. Uh, I don't think we've fully um, achieved that as yet. Certainly wider awareness amongst individuals and households, but as we all as consumers better understand, um, and it is, it is complex as a consumer to be grappling with some of this, and certainly the you know, consumer-facing companies, FMCG particularly, are really looking at this quite seriously. And I think if, you know, we've talked about the rapid shifts already in terms of diet and food trends and we want to see more of that, we'll, we'll start to see that, I think, in much, uh, a much bigger way across different factors or in line of, our, of our lifestyle. Certainly, though, if you look at kind of different, different sectors, um, climate intersects with so many other topics and issues. So if you're looking at, say, manufacturing or materials, you really want to be looking at, you know, what are they doing as regards to circular economy that will have, you know, positive climate impacts if we're, if we're making the full use of materials and, and delivering value um, across their different kind of um, states of being. Um, it's been mentioned already around transport. Of course, it's, it's about electrifying rail, for instance. It's electrifying what we can put on the road in terms of EVs and you know, the UK bringing forward um, the, the date of its ban on the sale of, of petrol, diesel and, and hybrid cars and vans. That's going to loom very, very soon. Um, we've seen at the city level all kinds of uh, restrictions to, to really you know, minimize um, emissions and, and impose those kind of congestion charges and things, um, while also expanding you know, the provision of, of ability to, to charge for EVs. And that's a whole growth market in and of itself, um, that whole charging network um, across uh, countries. And there'll no doubt be all kinds of other innovation we need to make that a reality, particularly around the batteries, um, which are particularly challenging. Um, the cities I think we live in, in and of itself, that we can, you know, the cities can be really high impact um, spaces, but because of the connectivity and the proximity that they afford us as well, they, they can certainly be 
um, sustainable hubs. And we, we know that despite some of the, I think the short-term trend, um, or we'll, we'll see the short-term, the kind of trend of some people moving away from cities in light of the pandemic, we know globally more and more people are still being attracted to urban centers. So I think that's a, that's a huge opportunity um, to make cities regenerative, um, inclusive, you know, building climate resilient infrastructure um, and, and maintaining those kind of healthy spaces in, in future-proof cities. Great, thanks, Denise. And Louise, as a global equity investor, I'm interested to hear how we can address environmental risk within investment. Yes, um, just certainly. I think uh, when we're looking at environmental risk, you know, there's many different issues, as has been discussed already on the panel, um, so many different challenges. Um, we bake it down really into where we have a responsible investment framework that we apply as we look at many other issues. Uh, and that falls into three different stages, really. So the top level is the corporate level. So what we as a business are doing within um, financial services, what we're doing to support the policy ambition that's out there. Um, and, you know, also our internal operations, the education that we give um, to not just our investment staff, but also across the business as well on some of these new and very pressing um, topics. Second of all, thinking more on a portfolio level. So what are the overall exposures when we're talking to our clients and offering individual products? What does this deliver in terms of the risk and the opportunity, the potential for alpha, but also what is then the climate exposure of that portfolio? Um, what is the carbon footprint, but also what is the opportunity as well within that? And then the third stage is at the corporate level. So kind of going down into those individual stocks and, and we've had some great opportunities that people have discussed already in terms of where companies are fulfilling certain solutions and certainly we're starting to see a lot of those being really exciting investment opportunities um, but there's also the the core part of business which which needs to decarbonize and and some businesses are doing a better or less good job of thinking about their exposures so we can use um, some of the operational metrics to look at that um, but also with the new TCFD framework that's out there asking companies to report against that um, is a really good way of assessing how, how thorough um, and how deep that kind of integration of environmental risk with it is within a business. So those are three areas um, that, we, that we focus on within Hermes and, and alongside that, as well as kind of looking at the data that's there, also talking to the company. So that engagement and stewardship angle is a really important point of continuing to accelerate or kind of lessen or mitigate the risk that we see um, within business. And um, what are some of the, the key challenges that Federated Hermes have faced when integrating environmental issues alongside S&G? Yeah, so what we've seen from some of the quantitative research that we've done is that we haven't seen such strong evidence on the environmental side of the alpha that can be generated. I think, you know, people will be aware of the research that's out there on the returns from governance and the governance premium that's out there. And same with some of the social factors as well, um, really starting to add value. On the environmental side, it's been a little bit more difficult to, to kind of pinpoint really what some of those systematic factors are. And so therefore we, look not just at a quantitative perspective, but apply a more qualitative lens to companies. That's maybe a bit more challenging in that it takes a bit more resource. You need people who understand the issues. Um, but that more qualitative overlay has its benefits in that it's also, also more forward-looking. It, it doesn't rely on um, some of the existing frameworks that are out there. And so that's you know one of the challenges that we've had to overcome, but that can be can be done through um, kind of the more applied research and having those more detailed conversations. I think the data continues to get better, and I think you know with um, the popularity of SASB more recently, we know a lot of companies are using GRI and other standardised frameworks. That also helps. We can continue to talk to companies to report against these standardised frameworks, and that will certainly address uh, another big challenge that people see. And do you think it would help having decarbonisation targets and, and how could that work in practice potentially? Yeah, so um, 
a lot of companies have had decarbonisation targets for a number of years and they are effective. I think when we're talking to companies, we want them to try and decouple um, the growth of their business. So not just setting efficiency targets in terms of carbon, but they're also setting absolute targets to in order to try and meet the net zero ambition. And, and in the last you know, year, we've had so many more companies coming out with these top level statements around net zero. Um, and also the science based targets approach um, is a really popular framework that we favor as investors, because it, it gives you a bit of guidance. Um, and also the fact that it is standard, uh, standardized does make it more interesting. So it does have a role to play. Um, but also, we want to look at the opportunity side as well, you can't um, look at an investment portfolio and kind of talk to your clients and say that you're really meeting the ambitions of Paris without having that um, opportunity side as well. So I think they go hand in hand. Thanks, Louise. And now I think we have come to the Q&A point. So it's over to you, Colin, and we're going to uh, open up questions to the audience. Thank you, Georgie. And if anyone's got any questions, feel free to add them to the Q&A button at the bottom as we go through. Um, so the first question is for, um, I think, for Stuart. Um, Stuart, do you think there needs to be enhanced or even specific climate expertise, climate expertise at board level? Um, no, that's a really good question. I, I, I think there, there is. I think, I think the operating environment for boards um, over the last 10 years has been extremely complicated and difficult. Um, you know, the operating environment with digital disruption, with tech innovation moving at a huge speed, there's a lot for boards to cope with. And, you know, aging populations, uh, changing customer behaviours and so on. Then all of a sudden, just when they thought they'd understood CSR and had a plan for it, cl the climate emergency comes along and they're having to understand new governance rules what net zero actually means, biodiversity, regenerative operations, circular economies, carbon offs. You know, it, it, it is a, a huge area of expertise. And I, I think a lot of companies, particularly medium or small size companies, really don't have the resource yet. So I think, um, you know, it, for me, it's a question, but it is about education and, uh, and communication. There is now so many resources you can reach out to and and, and get up to speed on some of these issues. Um, but from, fundamentally, as an ex-CEO um, myself, it is, it is really about risk and reputation. Um, you can fall behind very, very quickly, both financially and reputationally. Um, but you know, in terms of access to materials, um, there, there really does need to be a, and it can't just be one person on the board, it needs to be a board-wide um, skill set, in my view, because I think it's part of the rules of the game now is that businesses have to be aiming to net zero. It's not optional. Um, so, you know, for the easier stuff, you just look at the list of what it takes to become a, a B Corp, for instance. That will give you a perspective on the range of things that a company has to consider. Um, usually efficiency and waste are the, the first places to start. Yeah, yes, green electricity, but then go for the harder stuff, understanding their supply chain and the impact of every single aspect of their operation, uh, what it has on the environment and uh, and and the, the population. Um, so I think that there are lots of organizations now, which there weren't 20 years ago, uh, and consultancies set up specifically to help businesses. So I think that there's so much available now, Future Fit, Sustainability, South Pole, Natural Capital Partners, there's loads of companies out there that can really help um, set strategies, you know, net zero strategies and and help companies navigate. So I think I think really, and, and you know, just sign up to stuff. You know, there's the uh, global biodiversity framework. You can you can reach out to like-minded businesses and learn that way too. So crucially, set targets and then monitor progress. Thank you, Stuart. Um, we've got a question that's come in on, um, uh, I suppose, the EU and Brexit. So how how do you think firms should best prepare for incoming EU ESG regulations, given that they may not but they may or may not be onshored into the UK law after the Brexit transition period. Um, Louise, maybe, or Rebecca, do you, one of you want to take that? Yeah, I think certainly um, for any product generally that we're, we're selling, it's we want it to be applicable across both the UK and the EU market. So given that the EU regulation is really at the highest level of ambition currently, um, that that's where we're looking to kind of focus our attention going forward. I think 
one of the main hurdles at the moment is that some of the details are not there yet. And so that's kind of leaving it open to interpretation um, to a certain extent. But, you know, hopefully some of those kinks will be ironed out um, over the next couple of months. And, you know, we continue to speak to a lot of the people, you know, lots of kind of really innovative companies out there who are looking at solutions to how we can meet some of these regs better. Um, a lot of corporates looking to ensure that they are fully aligned to these regulations as well. So, um we definitely see it as a, as a big step up and certainly wouldn't look to uh, kind of position ourselves kind of differently from, from that EU regulation. And so also Brexit is a big uncertainty as, uh, at the moment as well. So kind of looking to take that out of the equation, I would say. Thank you, Louise. Um, Rebecca, question for you. Investment Week issued a report recently related to whether engagement is considered a more effective solution to support a sustainable economy than divestment. What are your thoughts around engagement versus divestment? Uh, this is a topic which has been argued for years as to how effective it is. Um, I'm a real believer in engagement. Um, but I think there are limitations. So I think it, 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 so if you're a very small asset manager that's holding a small number of shares and you're claiming that um, you're having huge amounts of influence on that business, um, I think that's quite difficult to prove unless you are working with uh, a collaboration group, which there are lots out there now, which, which have definitely helped cajole more action around engagement and understanding the outcomes of, of that work but I think that there, um, there needs to be up for these especially for these big oil and gas uh, businesses if engagements aren't achieving the objectives that investors set out to then you know is there a risk that holdings get reduced uh, I would like to think so I think in terms of divestment I think you do remove yourself from the ability to have um, uh, an influence on change. Um, so I think there's a place for both elements within a approach to sustainability and um, enacting change across across larger businesses. Thank you. Um, next question is for um, Tarn, why do you think climate-friendly COVID-19 recovery plans are important? Open question. I was just going to say, uh, I mean, this is a tough one because there's recovery plans for businesses, but there's also the government's sort of recovery plans. That if, I, if I take it as more the latter, I would say that there's, there's a significant amount of taxpayers' money being thrown at uh, addressing the climate, the, sorry, the COVID-19 crisis that we've, that we've gone through. Um, and that money that we're putting into that is is if it's not used to help leapfrog us into the environmental things won't necessarily be available there's only so much debt that our economy and our and our governments can actually impose on us before the before the the seams start breaking out at some point in the in the longer term and so i think it's very important that we actually try to assign um conditions to some of the funding requirements and, and I would hope that you know if people recognize how much of a gap we've still got on meeting a lot of the the Paris climate agreement objectives and the SDGs from from the UN we're still far from having enough funds dedicated to actually making those positive impacts those additional the additionality of the improvements needed and so I think if we focus on um, making those recovery plans um, contingent on and through and, and and made through a lens of looking at the environment and how we can improve practices I think we'll get a better way to utilizing um, and applying the capital in a, in a way that we we might not get to if we don't do it now if we don't do it now um, it's only going to be a much a, a much more a much greater sacrifice we're going to have to make in the end if we don't do it now thank you um Another question that's just come in, are asset owners and clients more concerned by social issues since the pandemic? And if so, which social issues are important to them and how would they like you to reflect them in their portfolio? Um, does anyone particularly want to answer this one? I mean, Denise, it's not your specialist area. Would you like to have a go? Or would you like one of the asset management specialists to have a go? No, I, I welcome someone to come in. But I would say in, in general, we're certainly seeing companies more 
um, certain topics certainly come into the fore because of that. So for instance, I think, you know, a topic as basic, if you like, or fundamental as health and safety, it almost retreated a bit um, to, to the back burner. It's, it's so mature and well-established, you know, it, you wouldn't have seen the focus, of course, that's brought that to the fore. And, and perhaps even greater than that is, is just fundamentally anything related to one's people and, and workforce. So, you know, suddenly it, it's being uh, concerned about perhaps more sophisticated issues, you know, businesses had to refocus on, can we get people to work in a health and safety, self, healthy and safe environment? And it really kind of came back to basics. So, um, you know, we had questions at the beginning of the pandemic, kind of sh should COVID-19 be on my materiality matrix? And, and, you know, talking companies through, no, that's probably not, the, <laughs> not what you need to do. It's, it's how that pandemic and these conditions impact this, you know, half dozen issues that you're grappling with and either you know, can exacerbate or, or in some cases just really accelerate a trajectory they may have already been on as particularly as it relates to the way that they were working you know, in a remote environment or kind of digitization um, and tech technological advancement. But I'll invite others to come in uh, perhaps specifically on, on you know, that side. I would add also that the, I think modern, the modern slavery um, concerns have, have become more topical for asset owners mm -hmm. in, in, you know, certainly through the pandemic and, and also um, over the last couple of years. And I think we're at risk, um, given the amount of unemployed and structural changes to jobs and availability of jobs. And, um, you know, a lot of the more, the less skilled workers are going to be potentially exposed to, to being taken advantage of. And I think that's something that asset owners and investors have to keep a really sharp eye on. Thank you. Um, Georgie, do you want one more question um, or do you want to conclude now? We've probably got time for, for, for one more quick question. Okay, all right. So um, this one, perhaps to Louise, um, what impact do you think uh, COP26 will have on mitigating climate change and helping to build a greener economy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think everyone's disappointed along with um, you know, all the events that, that haven't happened within 2020. But I think it has given uh, countries a little bit more time to come out with perhaps more ambitious statements. I think we've had so much activity um, this year so far um, in terms of companies making um, statements and, and, you know, countries as well kind of being that top-down supportive force um, in terms of supporting those ambitions that corporates have. Um, we obviously now have the, the US hopefully back in, um, which will make a huge difference um, to, to supporting that greening of the economy. But I think um, also, uh, you know, even kind of month by month, we're getting better and better technology. So, you know, whether it's through Tesla um, or more broadly in terms of battery storage, we're also seeing a lot of activity out of China um, in terms of some of those kind of new innovative technologies as well. So all of that has another year to be that much more impressive. And I think given, um, the, you know, the, the stoppages and the slowdowns that we've had this year, it has forced businesses to reassess and and to really consider that build back better um, uh, how they can do that how they can do that in the most kind of carbon efficient or kind of least impactful way um, and it's something that's also meant that it's higher on investors agenda as well um, so in that way they're getting the questions from investors um, they know they have to respond on it it's certainly a board level issue now um, and um, and so certainly you know our ambitions for COP26 next year are even higher than they would have been for this year um so so i would have thought that that has to be a good thing thank you louise georgie that's the questions over back to you thanks colin um and yes it does seem we've run out of time now so um thank you all very much for your participation today and um in the q a as well um it's become quite clear from our conversation that while the pandemic is a time of high anxiety it also brings opportunities for positive change it offers us a rare chance to reset the way that we invest and the way that we consume. It's really encouraging to hear that companies are increasingly seeing climate-related disclosures, such as the TCFD, as a strategic risk issue rather than just a box-ticking exercise. And it's clear that the efficient allocation of capital can significantly help to tackle the threat of climate change. Whilst investment in renewable energy, such as wind and solar, is at the crest of initiatives, the needed solutions are far more diverse than just clean energy. 
and there are many other effective ways to address global warming. In this webinar, we've touched upon sustainable infrastructure, transportation, innovative land use practices such as vertical farming, water and waste management, and regenerative agriculture. Organizations and investors can also look to partner up with NGOs like Just Dig It to help regenerate land and carbon offset. At the same time, relying solely on these NGOs and charities isn't enough and it isn't fast enough. There are so many stories that we can tell ourselves to justify doing nothing, but the reality is that climate change has arrived well ahead of schedule and scientist projections a decade ago have turned out to be unduly optimistic. What we choose to eat and the methods employed to grow it rank alongside energy as the top causes and cures of global warming. Individual responsibility and opportunity doesn't stop there. It includes how we manage our homes, transport ourselves, what we purchase and more. However, placing too much of an emphasis on the individual can also lead to people feeling overwhelmed by the enormity of the task at hand. And to be effective, we require and deserve a conversation that includes possibility and opportunity. As Paul Hawkin, the founder of Project Drawdown, has put it, we see global warming as an opportunity to build, innovate and affect change and a pathway that can awaken creativity, compassion and genius. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change stated that we have 12 years to take action, which gives us enough time to be feasible yet is sufficiently short to catalyze action. So now I'll get off my uh, hobby horse and leave you all to have a lovely rest of your day. Uh, we'd like to thank you for attending the CFA for supporting our webinars and um, our panel speakers today. Thank you very much.